Welcome to All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time. Our podcast offers friendly conversations with inspiring individuals in the autism community. All Autism Talk is brought to you by Learn Behavioral and the Learn Provider Network. Now, here's your host. Hi, everybody. Welcome to All Autism Talk. Our podcast is brought to you by Learn Behavioral, a leading ABA provider serving families across the country. I'm your host, Katherine Johnson. My guest today is Doug Carnine, Professor Emeritus at the University of Oregon and President of the Choose Kindness Foundation. Dr. Carnine spent the first 20 years of his career focused on improving the achievement of students who too often fail in school, children of poverty, limited English speakers, and students with disabilities. He spent the next 12 years of his career leading a campaign to increase the importance of evidence in education decision-making. He received a presidential appointment to the National Institute for Literary Advisory Board and later received the Lifetime Achievement Award from the Council for Exceptional Children. For the past 12 years, he has focused on mindful kindness, first coordinating the all-volunteer Spreading Kindness campaign in Oregon and then launching the multi-million dollar Choose Kindness Foundation that works with schools, businesses, prisons, and social service agencies across the U.S. I got a chance to sit down and talk to him about his recent books, St. Badass, How Love Wins, and his latest book aimed at teens and young adults, Lasting Happiness. Carnine, it's such an honor to have you on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. I'm pleased to be here. Um, I don't know if you know this. When I was in graduate school, your theory of instruction was one of my textbooks. <laughs> it's a pretty heavy book to go through. So if you made it through, congratulations. <laughs> it was definitely my biggest textbook. Um, but I'm being completely honest when I tell you that my classmates and I actually loved it. Um, and I've used what I've learned in that book for my entire career with kids and now in clinical development with BCBAs. And it's just been really important to my work. So I just wanted to thank you for it. I appreciate hearing that. It uh, it's hard work dealing with the challenges of instruction, particularly these days, and knowing that the book is helping people is a uh, makes me feel good. So thank you. Good, good. Well, I was surprised and thrilled when one of my friends recommended your book, How Love Wins, to me, and I realized that you were the author. And I'm just wondering, how did you go from this very successful? career in education and instructional design to now focusing on kindness, uh, kindness and meditation. I'll let you explain kindness. Well, what happened was I was in education for about 35 years and all the work involved trying to improve the outcomes for kids at risk for failure. And it was gratifying work and challenging work and ultimately tiring work. So mm -hmm. I decided it was time to switch to help people who are having all kinds of problems, some of which may have resulted from problems in their education, uh, particularly uh, persons of color and uh, youth in poverty. So I had a, a very moving experience. I was a hospice volunteer with a young man uh, dying of ALS. He was 25, 35 years old. Oh my goodness. Um, 
and he was a beacon of kindness. So people would just come and sit in the room to be near him. And we became very close before he passed. And then I started writing several people in prison convicted of murder. And the question was, what can I do that is positive for them? And what I came up with was mindful kindness. And so that led to the book, uh, St. Badass, Personal Transformation in Tucker Max Hell. And if I may say, that is the best title of all of your books. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. And it, the, the title, it's very interesting where it came from. Um, it's from Larkin Willis, who is a retired Buddhist teacher who's written many books on Buddhism herself and just has a gift for uh, what a book title should be. She also came up with the title, How Love Wins. I love that one as well. So anyway, I've shifted my career. I'm not retired. I have a new career, and that is currently president of a foundation, Choose Kindness Foundation, where we are funding mindful kindness in the workplace, in prisons, in schools, and with youth who have significant challenges of a variety of sorts, which relates particularly to our program today. And you have this trilogy of books. So St. Badass and uh, How Love Wins. And then now there's a third book. Has it come out yet? It will be out in about two months. It's The title is Lasting Happiness, A Guide for Teens and Young Adults. So what we have is How Love Wins is for more than 30 year plus and lasting happiness is for teens and young adults because we realize that the example sets and the framing of the content needs to be different for youth than it does for what we'll call mature adults. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that first book, St. Badass is sort of like a, is that kind of your journey um, with these prisoners that you've, that you've developed these close relationships with? Yes, it is about that journey, but I would say 85% of the book is in their words from letters mm-hmm. that they've written me. So mm-hmm. it's really them telling about their own journey, much more so. In How Love Wins, I was sort of struck by um, by when you do share those uh, personal letters that you're getting from your friends who are inmates there. Um, and I think I've done some, some volunteer work in the prisons over the years. And I think most people don't really know, um, exactly what an experience of living in a prison is like. Um, could you sort of just briefly outline for us, um, or for our listeners, what, what that looks like. And I think then your story is about, um, your inmate friends and, their journeys with kindfulness will sort of be um, all the more relevant. Uh, It's actually very disturbing to maintain contact with these men over 12 years because of the horrible lives they live in prison. Mm -hmm. So, uh, for example, the main character, Roy, has two hernia, externalized hernia. And not only will they not do surgery, but... All they'll do is give him ibuprofen for the externalized hernia and for his uh, rheumatoid arthritis. So medical care tends to be very poor. You are at the mercy of the mood of the 
guards oftentimes, they'll come in and unannounced, take all your belongings, throw them all over the cell, throw you up against the wall, take some of your belongings that you'll never see again. So there's, there's no sense of safety. When I talk to them on the phone in the background, there's constant yelling and screaming all the time. It's hard uh, to imagine how they can sort of like maintain a sense of humanity in that in that type of environment. Well, like Roy, he has to meditate between three and four a.m. because that's the only time it's quiet enough. Wow. So yes, it's uh, an unbelievable challenge to maintain humanity. But what is revealed in the book is that mindful kindness is transformative, even in that environment, and that's important. That book is important primarily because. 98% of the rest of us have an easier life. And so we don't really have an excuse that it's too hard to do right. because these men literally live in hell and they're able to do it as best they can. What would you say are sort of like the three takeaways that you would really want or the, or the, or the most important points in, in these books that you would really want readers to focus on and come away with? Well, the way we look at it is that that a lot of our lives are spent in carrying out our habits. And it's good to think about habits because they've been learned and that means they can be unlearned and they can be replaced. So the key things we want people to realize is how they can be kind to themselves, how they can be kind to others, how they can become more aware of ways they are unkind and how they can break those unkind habits. So right now we're finding that there's a terrific amount of, as we all know, anxiety, stress, varying degrees of depression. And so people are hungry for ways to concretely deal with those very negative feelings. And so we take them step by step through processes to identify kind habits they want to build, unkind habits they want to break. And then we do a lot on mindfulness. And mindfulness is Mindfulness is so important because it gets us out of our monkey mind or our figuring out mind or our worrying mind. And we really can't take care of ourselves or help others if we're just consumed with all of these negative thoughts. So mindfulness is a way to move us out of that negative place and to be more aware of what's going on around us and inside us. With that awareness, then it's possible to begin the change in our habits, more positive habits, less unkind habits. So, of course, the biggest takeaway is procedures for how to be more kind, less unkind to yourself and others. But we're looking at more and we're striving for more than just healing, which obviously is critical. So the second thing we do is we intentionally get people to start reflecting on their biases. Why is it that there's so much negativity toward other groups? It's exploding. We need to recognize those biases and that prejudice and discrimination in ourselves, and learn ways to deal with it. I loved the way that you really wove kindness or, or mindfulness into how you can sort of, that sort of seems to be the the passageway through which you can sort of um, become more kind to yourself and become more kind to others. And I found your glass bottom boat metaphor really stuck with me. Would you mind sharing that? Yeah, the idea is, so the setting is a glass bottom boat 
in an area with lots of coral reefs and because of the coral reefs there's all kinds of colorful fish it's beautiful and that's really represents what you can call your core nature your core kindness you can express it through religion through god or through science looking at evolutionary biology so it doesn't matter what lens you look at it but there's this this kindness and this openness that is inherent in each of us. We don't need to create it, it's there. So when the glass bottom boat, when the glass is clean, you can see this beauty. You can, you can experience this beauty within yourself. But when we have lots of regrets about what we've done or worries about the future or who we don't like, all of these things throw mud on the glass. And the more of that, we have in our minds, and it's in our minds, it's not the external world, it's what we do in our minds. If we keep throwing mud on that and more and more, we completely lose touch with this inner powerful kindness that we have. So the purpose of learning mindfulness is to remove the mud and don't let it come back. Now, of course, we're humans, we all make mistakes, we're gonna keep making mistakes, so we're gonna keep throwing mud on the glass but not as much. And we're going to get better at cleaning the glass. I love that so much. And so as we think about, you know, your, your book walks folks through recognizing what we are doing internally and externally to throw mud on the glass. Um, And then you give some really good, concrete, practicable solutions for the cleaning of the glass, for the, you know, um, cleaning out those, um, cleaning away all of that muck and really focusing on the present moment. Um, do you want to share some of those with our yes. listeners? Yeah, they're, they're very essential for the reason I noted earlier. If you, if you can't get the muck out of your mind, you're not going to be able to take care of yourself or help others. So, of course, there's meditation which is very important and very powerful. You can consider meditation a boot camp because in mindfulness, we're constantly moving away from something distracting or negative and back to whatever it is that we're intending to do in this moment, whether we're working on a report or slicing carrots, it doesn't matter. We wanna maintain our attention on what our purpose is, what our intention is at that moment. So. I spend constantly my days shifting back into what I'm intending to do. So we need lots of practice and lots of skills in terms of how to move from distraction to presence in our current intention. So meditation is, is, is very powerful because there are no distractions. You're just there looking at the wall or looking at the ceiling and noticing all this muck that's coming in. And so the practice is return to your breathing, return to an image, whatever mindfulness technique you use to bring you back to your intention. But there are lots of other things you can do during the day. And that's important because we only have so much time to meditate during the day, we're all busy. So I have a whole set of what I call mindful micro practices where you can train yourself to experience mindfulness when you're making the bread, making the bed, brushing your teeth, taking out the garbage, waiting in line, stuck in traffic. All of these can be transformed into 
quote, meaningless activities or, quote, irritating activities into training our minds how to switch from negativity and distraction back to what it is that we're intending to do in the present moment. I think in your book, you sort of walked us through, um, was it waiting in line at the grocery store? And I thought that was just such a fantastic example because, I mean, um, when you look around at people in long lines at the grocery store, they're, you know, grimacing and, you know, sort of sighing and shifting back and forth, you know, their weight, maybe they're like pacing and, you know, in small little circles so that they don't get out of line. <laughs> and, um, you know, it, it's really sort of this universally um, irritating thing to sort of have to wait in a long line. Um, and I loved your explanation of how this could become more positive. Can you share that? Um, well, what I'll share with you are some of what I call grounding techniques. Um, one in particular that I use when I'm standing in line. Now, a grounding technique is where you, you go very deep into one of your senses. So the, the one of them that works in line in the grocery is what I call soft ears. Soft ears means that you just hear the noise of conversations around you. You don't attend to the specific words of the conversation. This is not easy to do, but once you do it, it's very relaxing because you're kind of bathed and not, because they're not horrible loud noises, it's just conversation and it turns into this hum. Mm -hmm. Also, you can use sensing mindfulness which is a variation of making the bed and brushing your teeth. So when you're in line, feel your feet on the floor, feel the weight of whatever you're holding to check out or feel your hands on the grocery cart. So there's a whole range of things you can do to transform these so-called wasted activities into something that's really gives you good practice in what will change the way your day is every day, day after day. And so the 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 thinking of, of or the um, mechanism behind meditation is that you know you're sort of um, you say that you're you're focusing on the physical world. You're using these grounding techniques that are then sort of like not allowing your mind to get stuck in this sort of like negative mind wandering kind of activity. Um, and then is the thinking that then. Um, you just sort of like grow that muscle, that ability to sort of like shut off those negative thoughts and feelings? The muscle you're developing is really, it's not shutting off as much as I, I like to look at it as moving your attention away from them. Okay. Because they will keep arising mm -hmm. uh, with meditation and mindfulness. They won't arise as often. You won't stick with them and you won't act on them. So we're always going to become humans, as I said earlier, making mistakes. And that also means we're going to have all kinds of negative thoughts that arise from time to time. But they need not be a problem if we're well practiced in kind of leaving them alone and moving away from them. I see. So you're weakening them. You're very much weakening them. You're basically putting them on extinction. <laughs>
have, I know that your book is based on, there's a lot of research on meditation and that you're, you did a lot of, um, a lot of background research, uh, before you wrote, wrote these books. Can you tell us some of the maybe most interesting research findings on meditation and mindfulness? Um, actually I'm going to talk about meditation, mindfulness, and kindness because it's, it's the kindness that really, really changes our lives. The mindfulness allows it to do us, but it's the kindness that really changes it. So there are all these interesting findings like uh, a, a couple who've been together a long time. If they hold hands, the person who's in pain will feel less pain. Um, there's lots of examples like that where touching and all other kinds of support actually reduce pain. Uh, there are two pain systems. One is, this is an oversimplification, one's the absolute level, and then the other is how our emotions perceive it. So what happens is through kindness, we're supporting ourselves and others in not magnifying the emotional aspect of the pain. Um, there's literally dozens of studies relating kindness to better health, longevity, um, stronger relationships, and a key finding that I build both these books off of about uh, how love wins and lasting happiness is the Harvard Development Study that followed men from Harvard from before the Depression until the present day, those few who are left alive and then added a sample of African-Americans from Baltimore. So these are all men, and the findings were very clear. It wasn't income, fame, status, IQ. What mattered was that you developed and had and maintained close, caring relationships. And the way you have close, caring relationships is through kindness. So mindfulness is the path to kindness, and kindness is the key to a happy, fulfilling, loving life. Thinking about those relationships, it seems that you have built yourself quite a few uh, very kindful relationships with your friends who are inmates in prison. Can you tell us um, the impact that that's had on you and also the impact that that's had on them? Well, it's a very complicated situation because these men were all severely abused as children. And um, in ways I'm not even going to describe, they're so horrible. That doesn't go away. So th they're always facing challenges. They are often in the survival mode because of the way they were raised, the crimes they committed, which were horrific. And so I think the benefit to them, and this is interesting that I found with all the prisoners I've worked with, they feel they are totally worthless. That's a core feeling. Mm -hmm. And so by empowering them to be kind and seeing the effect they're having on other people, they realize they're not worthless. And that's very mm -hmm. profound. The effect on me is that comes in several flavors. One is being in prison is a great fear of mine. Just I can't even imagine it without thinking uh, it's just I couldn't survive. Terrific. So, yeah, horrific. So I've learned so much about prisons that at least I know what the animal is, so to speak. Um, because their needs are so great, and there's so many of them, 
it's more than I can do to meet all their needs. Mm-hmm. Like when they can't get medical care, one time Roy was needed urgent medical care. We wrote the, the head of the prison, the medical director for the state, we called, all failed completely. It turned out that he got better care because he was so kind that one of the nurses put his paperwork on the top of the stack of cases for the doctor to look at. So there's a a sense of helplessness on my part. And also recently, because of my age and health, I've had to create some boundaries about how much I could do because it's it's more than I can do, period. And that's heartbreaking because it's not that the needs are not real. The needs are more than real. They're just, they're things that I can't do successfully and, and uh, I can't do too many of them. There's just so much need in the world. There sure is. So our listeners are by and large parent, parents who have children with special needs um, and teachers and therapists who work with children with special needs. And both of those roles can be all consuming and can entail a fair amount of stress, even when we're not in the middle of a global pandemic. And I think that the types of people that are drawn to this type of job are people who often are very kind to others. Um, And I'm wondering if you could sort of elaborate about kindfulness to your, or kindness to yourself. So kindness to yourself, um, there are several implications. One is kind of the more obvious that maybe the job situation really isn't tenable. And the kind thing you need to do yourself is leave the job. So let's assume the job is tenable. Then the techniques that I talked about would come into play because it's stressful work and you're so busy. The meditation time is limited, but just walking to the bathroom, opening the refrigerator door. There are literally hundreds of moments during the day that you can bring yourself out of that negativity and a realization. Actually, it sounds odd, but when you're just your attention is opening the refrigerator door, things are okay because that's all your mind has in it. Things are fine. So load your day up with that. There's lots of other things uh, that we talk about, uh, like creating a list of pleasant events and how to engage in those more often. So there, there are lots of specifics that grow out of ways we become more mindful, use meditation, build kind habits, break unkind habits. We're doing, starting to do a lot of work in the workplace and we're working with mid-level managers and finding out that through our work with them, they're becoming aware of the ways they are unkind that they were not aware of. And that motivates them because they basically are kind people and to some degree are off course. So just be aware that there may be unkindness that's that's adding to your stress, unkindness on your part. So that's worth reflecting on as well. And gratitude, I think, was one of the other things that you had um, encouraged. You encourage people throughout your book to sort of mm-hmm. list the things that they're grateful for every day, as that can be um, sort of personally up- uplifting. Yeah, we start right at the beginning with gratitude. It is a it's a powerful practice. It's a kindness practice because the more gratitude we have, the more inclined we are to be kind. 
So it's a positive cycle. The key to kindness is experiencing the emotion of the kindness and not just having it be a cognitive activity of writing down those words. So you kind of want to place yourself, image yourself in that situation that that's positive, that you're grateful for, and momentarily savor that emotion. The key to all of this work is changing our behavior and our feelings. The cognitive load is fairly light. Uh, from a point of cognition, this is very sim simple-minded. You know, be mindful, be more kind, be less unkind. Um, deal with your biases, prejudices. And then the third thing we focus on that I haven't mentioned is we want people to go out and be advocates for kindness. Once they see the benefits they receive, I'm hoping they will see their responsibility to share that with others. And this is for culture change. Mm -hmm. We have a very, very negative culture right now. And we have a responsibility, although it may seem impossible, in our individual ways to not just model kindness, but to talk to others about its importance. I love that. And I think I saw on your website um, an application. Do you have a program that that um, you can fund for, is it like high schools and middle schools um, for groups of children or groups of teens to go through your kindfulness program? Yes, we have. Uh, it's very important work, I think. We have programs where we take youth with high ACEs scores or high stress backgrounds, current high stress, through 15 facilitated sessions of lasting happiness, a guide for teens and young adults. And because we're asking these youth who have very, very hard lives to, to face their lives and to commit to really changing their lives, we actually pay the youth to go through the facilitated settings when possible. We're about to launch a program in middle and high schools for tier two students. Now tier two students are those who need more intensive help than just the regular school population. In schools, it's really not allowed to pay students to go through the program. So what we're going to do is allow the students in these groups to amass a certain amount of money, and then they will decide what kinds of kindness activities they will do for the school or the community. So not only are these youth having the opportunity to transform their lives, they are moving into the role of actor and empowerment to actually bring kindness in some way to others, and they'll actually be able to define how that happens. I love that so much. And can schools apply to um, to have this program be a part of their curriculum, or is this in a pilot? It's in stage a pilot. It's in a pilot stage. But if there are schools that have you know, the technical name is PBIS, Positive Behavior Intervention and Supports, they have a structure where they have a tier two leader, and schools that have a tier two leader and are well implemented, will be eligible to apply. So we would be accepting inquiries, even though we won't be launching it till probably spring. 
So that's such important work. I'm really excited that you are really pushing for culture change. And I think it sounds like you're doing it in a lot of different ways. And I've noticed that the proceeds of all of your books go directly to the Choose Kindness Foundation. Um, can you tell us about some of the other activities of the foundation? So we're, we're running a mindful kindness program in prisons. We have about a thousand inmates enrolled in, I don't know, maybe six or seven states now. It's been hard with COVID and the lockdown because they have to do it through correspondence. As COVID winds down, we'll shift to groups because the groups are what's really powerful. We found that with the youth that we've already worked with. They see their problems are shared by other youth and they practice in the group the skills we want them to learn. So they learn skills about how to be kind and then they apply it to other members of the group and how to be less unkind. The facilitators of these groups thus far have been amazed at how quickly and how openly these youth will discuss things that are really troublesome in their lives and really need to change. So it's this group process that's so important and we're gonna move that into prisons as soon as COVID allows. And I say, I said like we got about a thousand inmates enrolled so far. In schools, we gave kindness grants to about 80 schools, over 40,000 students. And then we're planning several new initiatives for schools, one of them being tier two. Uh, we're working with groups of high ACEs scores. We're focusing on African-American, Latinx, Indigenous, because those are so often underserved and usually just overlooked. And then we're working in the workplace, as I said, and that's very interesting because we're finding a real hunger for how workplaces can be kinder. Largely for the well-being of the individual, but what we found through our research, it's a really fine thing to do for the bottom line in business as well. Oh, wow. Say more about that. Well, there's a Harvard Business Review article that talks about how a positive workplace can contribute to uh, the bottom line, uh, productivity, staff relationships. So we're actually creating training programs for mid-level managers uh, to be able to implement kindful practices um, that are both personally beneficial and organizationally beneficial. One of the things that's interesting is there's relatively little research on kindness in the workplace, but there is tons of research on incivility in the workplace. There's an incredible mm. amount of negativity in the workplace that we're beginning to offer an alternative to. Well, that is wonderful. Dr. Carnine, it's been a pleasure to meet you and to talk to you. And I want to thank you for the really important work that you're doing. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed this conversation. My overarching takeaway is that there are really simple things that we can all do in our everyday lives to chip away at the negativity that's so pervasive in our society. And that you really can go from feeling miserable to being more in the moment, happier, and more grateful. 
Doug is working with people in prisons from very challenged circumstances who have changed their lives and the lives of others through working on their kindfulness. And that shows us that any of us have this potential to change how we feel and how we experience our lives. You can listen to our other episodes on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. We always appreciate your reviews and ratings if you're so inclined. And if you have show ideas or a question for us, email us at allautismtalk at learnbehavioral.com or find us on Instagram or Facebook at, at Autism Therapies. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of All Autism Talk. This podcast is brought to you by Learn Behavioral, the leading network of providers serving children with autism and other special needs. Visit us at learnbehavioral.com. Listen to previous episodes at allautismtalk.com on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time.